Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for listening to the Travel Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Charles Pachter. Charles is known as Canada's artist, a painter, printmaker, and sculptor whose work adorns the Canadian Embassy in Washington, Canada House in London, the Parliament Buildings, and the Prime Minister's Residence. Charles is both a member of the Order of Ontario and an officer of the Order of Canada, with his work being exhibited at the McMichael Gallery, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and the Royal Ontario Museum. Over a 60-plus year career, one of the highlights is his Hockey Nights in Canada, those fantastic murals on both sides of the College Street subway station where the Toronto Maple Leafs face off against their arch-rival, the Montreal Canadiens, on the other side of the tracks. Another highlight is his extensive work focused on our country's iconic Canadian red and white Maple Leaf flag. And yet another highlight are his pop art pieces involving the late Queen Elizabeth, our Canadian moose, as well as combinations of the queen and moose together, demonstrating his particular brand of affectionate mischief. Welcome, Charles, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm in my studio in downtown Toronto on Grange Avenue, just west of the AGO. I've lived in the neighborhood for over 40 years, and I just finished building this new museum that took four years and cost four times the original estimate. But here we are, enjoying living in this uh, peaceful uh, and safe neighborhood in this terrific city. Excellent. Well, you were an early pioneer in the work-from-home movement. You've been working from home from well before COVID was ever a thing. Yes, in fact, uh, you know, live-work is what uh, makes it easiest for artists. The combination of being able to have a working studio and a uh, lot of wall space to hang your work uh, makes a big difference. So I've been doing that in the neighborhood here for many, many years. Now, I understand that the building behind your place, which originally was your studio, was at one time a, a Jewish funeral home. And back in the day, one would have seen horses and buggies transporting bodies back and forth. That's correct. Right next door to me uh, was a factory for making horseshoes for Canada Bread. And it was built in the 1880s. And it is just sold next door to me for a million five. <laughs> it's a dump, but there you are. Welcome to Toronto in 2023. Yeah. Welcome to Toronto real estate. Yeah. But no, the, the original building in the back was a funeral home, and then it became a Chinese food warehouse. And I bought it back in 1996 as a complete wreck. And uh, it was just one story. And I renovated it into an event space and a show space, which I renamed the Moose Factory, my pun on Andy Warhol's factory in New York and Moose Factory in Northern Ontario, of course, a famous uh, landmark up in the Canadian North. But I did for the Moose what Andy Warhol did for Marilyn Monroe. I made the Moose glamorous. You certainly did. We're going to talk about that. Now, Now your combination home and studio is literally only a football field away from the city's great art institutions. 
In fact, from your rooftop terrace, I understand you can see the Art Gallery of Ontario and that, of course, super unique OCAD building on stilts. Yes, um, I'm kind of proud to be the baby brother, uh, the baby sibling of both of those institutions. It's not that often that artists have been able to create their own private museums, but I feel very fortunate that I've been able to at this time in my life. And most importantly, Charles, I understand you have your very own dedicated table at Dim Sung King on Dundas Street. It's my favorite restaurant. It's literally out the back door of my studio. And Kelvin Chung, the owner, is a terrific friend. The minute I walk in with friends, the whole staff yells out, VIP, VIP. And they put me at a lovely table overlooking the city and the restaurant. It's a great place. It's a 421 Dundas on the third floor, but it li literally is a second home. We're there two to three times a week. Excellent. Well, I like that kind of lifestyle, and I like that you're a VIP there. That's excellent. <laughs> now, I understand you also have a second home and studio compound in the heart of Aurelia. Correct. Why a second home and studio? What are your connections to Aurelia? Okay. For many, many years, my parents had cottages all around Lake Simcoe, uh, from Jackson's Point all the way up to... Um, an area about eight kilometers south of Aurelia called Cedarmont. Uh, in my 30s, I remember reading Mordecai Richler's Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, and I decided I needed a 100-acre farm. So I bought a farm in Oral Medonte, just in between Barry and Aurelia. And I used to go into Aurelia to buy butter tarts and go to the Goodwill. The best butter tarts in Ontario are at Wilkie's Bakery, still there in downtown Aurelia. And I found the town to be charming, but I then moved into a uh, an old ice house on Lake Simcoe, 10 feet from the water, that I renovated into my uh, summer home and studio, and I was there for 12 years. But I've come to realize now that I'm about to hit the big 8-1 that life is about cycles, and after 12 summers at the cottage in Lake Simcoe and serving drinks to all my friends on the deck in July and August, and them saying, is this Smirnoff or Stoli? Because I don't drink Smirnoff, and they never brought anything. I just was so busy looking after everybody in the summer. But once again, I used to go into Aurelia, and my real estate nose started to twitch because back in the 70s, I renovated over a dozen buildings on Queen Street West, only to lose them all during that horrible recession of 1981. You're too young to know this. But the interest rates went up to 23%, and anybody who owned real estate was just lost. You couldn't do anything. But I started to look at Aurelia, and in 2013, 10 years ago, the prices were literally 10% of Toronto. And I came to realize, I was just about to turn 70, that it was time for me to move from the lake into the town because the town was open all year round. And one of the things that surprises me so much about Aurelia is how well endowed it is with supermarkets and shops and stores. It's a town of 32,000 people. It's, to me, the quintessentially charming small Canadian city, and it's one hour north of the 401. But where I got really lucky was I bought the factory back in 2014 and renovated it into a live workspace. It was an old car repair shop, huge space, about 3,000 square feet. And on a warm summer night, I was sitting uh, with the uh, door open to my studio, and this really cute guy came by uh, with his getting his bike repaired, and I sneezed, and he said, bless you, and the rest is history. I met Keith Lamb, who's from Aurelia, and we got married three years later, and we've been now married for five years, and he is just a delight and a wonderful partner. He's got uh, six other brothers and sisters, 
the family are Aurelia aristocracy. They started the first Chinese restaurant in Aurelia in the mid-50s called, what else, the Golden Dragon, and everybody used to go there. And um, one of the other reasons I love going up there, I convinced my nephew, who's now in his 40s with three kids, wife and three kids, they moved to Aurelia, and they he became quite well off by becoming a realtor there and has got a beautiful home right in the heart of town as well. So this is what we like about it. Given the situation in the world, we sometimes forget how seriously lucky we are to live in these quiet, peaceful, inclusive, decent places that we call home. So we're lucky because we have the energy um, of downtown Toronto and Chinatown. And then we get in the car in an hour and a half, we're up in Aurelia and we go to Bounty Fish and Chips on Colborne Street for the best fish and chips. And they go, grand day today, eh? How are you then, eh? Oh, nice to see you, eh? And you can get a luncheon special, roughy French fries, coleslaw, and a soft drink for ten ninety nine. It's about a quarter of the price of Toronto. <laughs> Charles, you have made the case for the uh, Aurelia slash Toronto lifestyle. I think yeah. you got it figured out. Of course, you are a Toronto kid, born in 1942 in Toronto. Would you mind giving us a synopsis of your background? Yes. I was born in the middle of the Second World War and the Holocaust. My, uh, my parents lived in downtown Toronto. Uh, they knew what was going on in Germany, and they had relatives who were you know, being transported to death camps. They were smart enough to give me a WASP name, Charles Stewart, and they moved to North Toronto, Chudley Avenue, where the only Jewish family on the street. At that time, multiculturalism, as we know it today, didn't exist. Uh, I came home one day and I said, how come we don't have pictures of the baby Jesus up on the wall like all the other kids? My mother said, Harry, say something. You tell him. <laughs> and um, we lived on Chudley Avenue uh, until 1950, until my parents decided to move down to Bathurst and Eglinton so we could go to the Holy Blossom Temple for Sunday school which is what I did. And in my class at the time were people like Rick Salutin, David Mervish, Michael Levine. We were all the grandchildren of immigrants, but the, in the 50s, we moved into areas of Toronto that were a little more middle class and uh, a lot more uh, fun, you know. And as you progressed through, you were formally trained. You also learned on the go. And after graduate school, you headed to Montreal to work on Expo 67. Correct. First, I went to the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. I got my BA at the U of T, an honors BA in history uh, and art history, then um, moved on to the uh, marvelous art school in the States, the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, north of Detroit. It's one of the finest campuses in America. I took a master's degree there, and I was thrilled to be tops in my class. And at the time, I did my master's degree based on illustrating the poetry of Margaret Atwood, who is a dear friend that I met at summer camp at Camp White Pine in Halliburton. She was called Peggy Nature then because she uh, ran a little nature hut uh, full of toads and frogs and snakes and all sorts of little creatures. And one day she asked me to stroke a toad to prove to the kids that I wouldn't get warts. <laughs> and I did, and we became lifelong friends. And we're still friends 60 years later. Bless her heart, she's a genius, and she was such an inspiration to me as a young man. Uh, she sent me her poems when I was at the Cranbrook Academy in Michigan, and she was out in uh, Vancouver. And the minute I read them, 
I knew they were brilliant, and I did my master's degree based on illustrating her poems. The major result of that was our most famous book, The Journals of Susanna Moody, which I did in 1980 when I was after she sent them to me when I was at Expo 67. She was at Harvard and I was in Montreal. And it took 11 years for me to find a way to print these original uh, poems. But I brought printers in from Spain and it took us a year to print The Journals of Susanna Moody, which is our most famous collaboration. Now, you have a huge portfolio, Charles, but with your permission, I'd like to focus on some of the projects I mentioned in the intro. Let's start with the Hockey Nights of Canada with Knights spelled K-N from 1985. It can't be a coincidence that these murals are in the TTC's College Street subway station, as this is, of course, mere blocks away from what was the iconic Maple Leaf Gardens, home to our Toronto Maple Leafs, until they moved in the late 90s to the Air Canada Centre, now Scotiabank Place. Who commissioned this piece? It's an interesting bit of history. Um, I was asked by Julian Porter, who was then uh, a well-known Toronto lawyer, who was then on the board of of the TTC, if I would consider uh, rethinking the uh, college subway station because there had been an in-house design that came out from the TTC that was just a rather bland group of um, silhouettes. And I came up with the idea of this historic rivalry between the Leafs and the Canadians. And I presented it to the TTC and was more than surprised that they accepted it. It was a huge project that took nearly nine months to do the um, panels that had to be baked at over a thousand degrees to uh, get them um, anti-graffiti, to get them graffiti proof. And uh, these, they were done out at the Garland Stoveworks in Mississauga, and it took uh, approximately nine months to create them. And they were installed in April of 1985. And my mother, bless her, had a wonderful way with words when the CBC stuck a mic in her face and said, well, what do you think of this? And she said, well, it's the basement, but it's permanent. <laughs> That's a very good question. Only a mother would say that, right? That is what only a mother would say. Yeah. Now, what is not in your player murals are neither the Toronto Maple Leaf nor Montreal Canadiens logos. Did you have issues with the NHL or Maple Leafs owner, Harold Ballard? We did indeed. He just about had a, pardon me for my French, but he had a shit fit when he saw that uh, we were doing the two teams. And she said that he said, there's no way those frogs are going to be in the same place as my Maple Leafs. But uh, Julian advised me to sort of uh, gloss over the uh, the uh, logos and to try and just suggest them so they couldn't nail them down to be specifically Leafs or Canadians when, of course, everybody knew what they were. So they're newer. And not only did we know what it was, but I think the players in the mural are based on actual players because, for example, I'm pretty sure I see three-time 50-goal scorer Rick Vive, and yep. I think I see the great goaltender Ken Reggett in some of the images. Charles, are they yeah. based on real players? Uh, more or less. I mean, I have to admit that I wasn't uh, a major hockey fan. I didn't know a lot about who these players were, but there was uh, there's several people who say to me, isn't that Mike, uh, what's his name? Is it a goaltender? Mike Palmatier. Yes, Mike Palmatier. So I said, if you think so, it's okay with me. And then there was a controversy behind the whole thing. And there was a video that's still on YouTube uh, from TSN. People want to see it. They can just type in college hockey mural and it'll come up yeah it's me explaining at the time in 1985 uh, how many years ago nearly 30 years ago 
40 years ago. Yeah. Yes. Now, on that note, I'm sure I have not been the first guy to suggest this to you, but how about a brand new, fresh Maple Leafs and Raptors mural in the revitalized Union Station subway station, which is literally connected to their current shared home of the Scotiabank Arena? Hey, I wouldn't say no to that. I think someday there may be a possibility that the murals that are still in the college subway might get moved either to the Hockey Hall of Fame or for me, the greatest moment of pride would be if they went to Ottawa, to the National Gallery. Uh, who knows what's going to happen to them, but it, it seems to me that someday they will no longer be as meaningful in the station as they were then when Maple Leaf Gardens existed. That may be true, but I'm going to defend them in the sense that, that Maple Leaf Gardens, of course, is today the Mattamy Athletic Center for Ryerson. They're still playing hockey there, so I'm going to say your pieces should stay there forever. Okay. I'm, I, I respect that. I, it'll be interesting to see what they decide. But they are a landmark, and I'm thrilled that they're there. And um, it's just really nice to know, now that I'm 81, <laughs> that uh, I remember doing them when I was 40, you know, or whenever it was, 44. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. Now, Charles, I want to talk about another major part of your portfolio. Let's talk about the queen and the moose and the queen with the moose. Yeah, our Canadian moose is known as the monarch of the north, and you combined it with our monarch at the time, Queen Elizabeth. Your painting of the queen perched and riding side saddle on a moose and saluting is absolutely iconic. Tell us about the story behind this painting. Well, I grew up in the period of pop art, and uh, for me, the moose was, uh, I did for the moose what Andy Warhol did for Marilyn Monroe. I made the moose glamorous, and it all started back in, 1947 at age four when I starred in a movie which is on YouTube. It's called Johnny at the Fair, made by the National Film Board, where I played a lost kid at the CNE. And I got the, it, the CNE reopened after the war. It had been closed for six years. My parents are in it. They played themselves. I play this lost kid who ends up in the lost children's compound. And when I'm finally, after running around the X uh, for two weeks where they filmed me, one of the uh, images from that time was me petting a moose in the midway. There was an old fellow from northern Ontario named Joe Laflamme who looked for all the world like an Old Testament prophet. There's a picture of him on my website. But he had this pet moose that he used to travel around North America with to the different fairs. He was even in Times Square back in 1949, and 50,000 people showed up to see him with his moose. But I still recollect that moment when I pet the moose and I could smell the fur on this big creature. And somehow it stayed with me. But then again, as I began to mature uh, as a teenager and it, the world of pop art was every Canadian magazine, art magazine, was full of stories about American pop artists. Uh, it was part of our colonial mentality that if it came from elsewhere, it was deemed to be important. And if it came from here, who do you think you are? But I ended up at age 26 going out to Calgary to teach at the university there. And it was in Calgary where I really started to discover Canada. I did my first images of Mounties and Cowgirls and the Prairies. And somehow or other, the whole pop art aura became part of my vocabulary. And when I got back to Toronto in 1972, I did a whole series on streetcars that were shown at the Isaacs Gallery, a huge success. But then I remember reading 
that the Queen was coming to Niagara on the Lake in 1973 to open the Shaw Festival Theater. And somehow or other, I'd read also somewhere that Pierre Trudeau, our then Prime Minister, started calling her the Queen of Canada. And as a, a grandson of immigrants who was neither French nor English, I came to see the monarchy as something rather well, I guess I have to use the word silly because I couldn't figure out how come the head of state didn't live here and who is this prissy family from London. And the whole thing about colonialism came to fascinate me later in my career when I started to study the whole history of uh, the WASP founding of Canada after the conquest and Wolf and Montcalm and the American Revolution and John Graves Simcoe. I did a whole series on the uh, English career soldiers who came over and with their energy and enthusiasm founded Ontario. Now, of course, that's politically incorrect. We don't talk about white military British colonial officers conquering the First Nations. However, it was history. And as part of all that, I came to explore the um, irony of a head of state who didn't live here. So when I read that she was coming to Niagara-on-the-Lake, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this epiphany and did this painting of her seated on a moose as the Queen of Canada. I showed them to my then dealer, Av Isaacs, after I'd had the very successful show of the streetcars. He took one look at them. He said, I don't have to show these and I don't have to tell you why. In those years, it was knee-jerk colonial reverence of the monarchy. That's changed completely now, 50 years, 60 years later. But I got lucky because I bought my first house on Shaw Street in 19, uh, when was it, 1970 for $26,000. Thank you very much. And when I read that the Queen was going to be in Niagara-on-the-Lake in June of 1973, I decided to open the show myself on the same day, and I called the show the Other Shaw Festival, and my good friend Larry Brenzel, who had a 1954 Rolls-Royce, and he and his wife, Sally, were big collectors of my work. He got Sally to sit in the back of the car in the hat and a glove waving all afternoon right at the curb. It made press around the world. It was filler. Canada and royal rage over Queen on Moose. Monarchists threatened to slash canvases. Artists warned to stay indoors. It was all silly hype. But I became Andy Warhol overnight at age 30. P.S. I never sold one painting. Now, on that note, Charles, yeah, exactly as you said, you became the Canadian Andy Warhol overnight, hadn't sold a painting. Suddenly, you came across Lorraine Monk. Correct. What was your interaction like with Lorraine Monk, and how did things change for your career? Gee, you did some good research there, Andrew. Lorraine was a wonderful woman, started the Canadian Museum of Photography in Ottawa, moved to Toronto in the uh, late 70s. Somehow or other, we were introduced. She came to my studio she was spellbound when she saw the image of the, the painting of the Queen on the Moose. She said, how much do you want for that? I said, I don't know, $1,200. She said, oh, I can't give you that. I said, oh, okay, how much will you give me? She said, I'm giving you 10000 She said, it's the most important piece of pop art to have ever been created in Canada, and someday it should go to the National Gallery. In the meantime, she bought the painting from me. She had it all these years. Uh, Lorraine died la uh, two years ago at age 93. Her husband, her widower, has given it to me because he would like to sell it. In the meantime, I've got it hanging in my museum. And if there are any enlightened collectors out there, they might end up someday 
purchasing it and then donating it to the National Gallery after I'm gone, because it will become a piece of pop art history. But one of the things Canadian artists have to deal with is while you're alive, you're not treated with that kind of reverence as after you're gone. We have the likes of Emily Carr and the Group of Seven, all of whom totally deserve the accolades they have gotten, and, but they've been dead for a hundred years, so it's um, it's a whole different vibe. And I've had to accept that. And one of the reasons why I have become, he said, modestly a legend, as you put it, is because I built my own palace right in the heart of the city. And once you reach a certain age, you don't really care what anybody else thinks. You do what works for you. And I love greeting guests from around the world who come to my museum. I love the feelings of happiness and appreciation they have when they come to my place. It gives me a great feeling of uh, of pride to be able to share my life and my work that way. Absolutely. Now, with the success of this first painting, you then dined out, so to speak, on the royals, both in terms of your popularity and the value of your artwork, and you then met Queen Elizabeth herself in London, 2015. How did your conversation go? It was really quite sweet. I had been invited to the reopening of Canada House in London in Trafalgar Square, and the Queen was cutting the ribbon. Uh, One of my paintings of the Canadian flag had been donated by a couple of Canadian philanthropists who had purchased it and donated it to Canada House in London. The uh, Queen came to cut the ribbon. I was wearing my Order of Canada pin, and she came up to me and smiled graciously. I always had great respect for her. She was quite um, uh, a gracious and uh, very special person. But I didn't wait. I said, Your Majesty, this is such an honor. Four decades ago, I painted you as the Queen of Canada seated on a moose. It caused a scandal at the time, but it became my most famous picture. And thanks to you, I made a living all these years. She chuckled and she said, How amusing! <laughs> she wasn't offended. She thought it was cute. So I was really delighted about that. And I even met now King Charles, uh, I met him when he was Prince Charles in Toronto in 1999 at the distillery, and I gave him a postcard of, of his mom on a moose, and I have a picture of him cracking up as well. He thought it was so funny. There you go. But it was done, it was affectionate mischief, what the French call espièglerie. Espiègle means cheeky. You're being cheeky. It wasn't malevolent or mean-spirited. It was a grassroots Canadian kid trying to make sense of this phenomenon, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Well, you are certainly known of your connection with the moose, and yeah. neither here nor there, but I have to bring this up. Moose in the City was a public art display in the year 2000 that saw 326 life-side moose sculptures placed throughout the GTA and decorated by local artists. This initiative was spearheaded by George Cohan, the late founder of McDonald's Canada, in conjunction with Mel Lastman, the late great mayor of North York and the megacity. Now, Charles, were you a fan? At some point, as the uh, excitement began to grow about the whole project, I was contacted by Mel Lastman's office, and they said, who are you anyway, and why do people keep mentioning you with the moose? Well, Mel came down to see me, actually, and he was apologetic, and he said to me, we want to make you the moose mentor, and we'd like you to do the first one on, uh, I did one on the uh, diving board at City Hall. They put one over one of the arches and it made it to the New York Times travel section, believe it or not. And with all due respect, the moose that they created looked more like a horse with fat ankles. It didn't look like a moose. Moose have skinny legs. 
and are a little more majestic. However, I ended up doing five different ones. We did a Melmoose with a hair transplant. I used door springs for the hair transplant on the head. And we did another one of a Marilyn Moose had a sweater because she got caught shoplifting. <laughs> so we did one of Marilyn. And um, I had such fun with it. The, the funniest one of all was the gay moose at the corner of Church and Wellesley, which had a, a jock strap and black boots, right? <laughs> and people just kept, it was the most photographed moose of the whole of the whole thing. But we had a great deal of fun with it. And it, it was a huge success when all is said and done. And then, of course, they were auctioned off after for charity. And the one of uh, the one on Church Street, we had it was sent out to Niagara on the lake, and they had to repaint it brown with green leaves on it. So it looked at the Dionysus moose, and there you are. But it was a fun project, and I give them credit for it. But in fact, my moose, he said modestly, are more graceful and iconic, to use that famous word, one of my moose is at the corner of Harvard and St. George. It looks like um, a sundial. It's cut out of Cortan steel, and it has a really nice silhouette. And if you can keep a secret, but I'll share it with everybody, I put in my will that I want my ashes scattered at the foot of the moose. <laughs> Way back, it, It's now been there since 12, 2002, so it's uh, over, what, 20 years. Excellent. I like that, and I'm glad you brought that up, Charles, because you do have steel and granite moose sculptures installed across Canada. Yes, there are moose in Montreal, there are moose in Vancouver, in Regina. I'm very pleased that I've been able to get my work across the country. One of the um, things that I have learned to do, because the CRA loves me so much, if you're a successful artist, you pay a huge amount of taxes. But when I'm able to donate my work to various institutions around the country for what's called a cultural property receipt, I can actually use the receipt to uh, help reduce my taxes. So I have works, interestingly enough, in museums across the country, in Fredericton, in Saskatoon, in Edmonton, Peterborough, in Ottawa, but not the National Gallery and not the AGO. These are huge institutions with tens of thousands of works of art. Someday that may happen when I'm gone, but collectors will donate my work and they'll get their tax receipts. I guess they call that a win-win. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> if you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Charles Pachter, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. we got Sarah Waxman, Alan Frew, Steve Pakin, Cameron Bailey, and Basil Donovan. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. Now, finally, let's talk about your interest in our national flag. You love creating pieces around our Canadian flag, that iconic maple leaf on our red and white background. Now, the modern Canadian flag, known as the maple leaf flag, was introduced in 1965. How and why has that flag inspired you so much? Well, when I had my farm up in Oro Medonte, uh, I used to uh, have these wonderful picnics on July the 1st where everybody from Margaret Atwood to Moses Nimer would show up and we'd get all these people sitting on having déjeuner sur l'air, luncheons on the grass. And I read somewhere that it was going to be the flags in 1980. It was the flag's 25th anniversary. And um, I went into Aurelia and I bought a, one of those uh, Canadian tire flags stuck it on a fence post hole and was lying in a hammock in the twilight, summer twilight, watching it 
move graciously uh, under the influence of the wind and the light. And I had an epiphany. I decided to do some paintings of the flag and make it glamorous. Under the influence of wind and light, it's a lot sexier than it is when you just look at it as a beer label flat image. And I started doing these paintings of the flag, and I think I finished 20 or 25 of them in uh, 1980 and 81. And I had a big show on Queen Street. I had bought an old uh, IGA supermarket and turned it into one of the most glamorous galleries on Queen Street and opened the show, the painted flag, the day after Pierre Trudeau had had announced the patriation of the Constitution. And all of the Toronto art world was there, most of them now gone. Peter Zosky, Barbara Frum, Pierre Burton, June Colwood. It was the event of the, of the night, and the show looked so glamorous and elegant. The next day in the Globe and Mail, John Bentley Mays, who always trashed me, said, moreover the couch art for the walls of patriotic dentists. That was his review of my show. Yes, I never sold one painting. Welcome to Canada. Six months later, a wonderful man named George Gilmore, who was in the president of the AGO, he'd been involved in the advertising business, he bought my first flag painting for $12,000. And he said, your prices are outrageous, but it's a magnificent image. And it, it ended up, believe it or not, the owner now is John Tory because he was involved with the same company as George Gilmore, and he now has it hanging in his home uh, on Bloor Street. But they are now in collections all over the world. They're in embassies. Corporations have them. They have become one of my biggest sellers. The top price I've gotten for a flag painting now is 85000 It may seem like a lot for Canadians, but here I am at 81. If I am like a Canadian David Hockney or an Andy Warhol, our country has yet to allow living artists to reach that height in terms of sales. It happens the minute you're gone. William Kuralek, who did all these wonderful prairie paintings, his his prices went up like 500% after he passed on. So I'm telling collectors, buy now and save. <laughs> good. You'll get lucky. Yeah. Very good advice. And on that note, Charles, you represent yourself without an agent. How do you like the business side of the art world? And can a good artist also make a good businessman? Let me just say, with all due modesty, the number of artists who are good at business is about equal to the number of people who are good at business. How many people are good at business? 5%, 10%. I was lucky. I was a middle-class kid with good business skills. I had six dealers over a period of five decades, and I never made more than twenty dollars or $25,000 a year because the dealers, the system is balanced in their favor. They have the output of 20 different producers, whereas if I even sold from my studio, I would be penalized. I'd have to pay the dealer a commission. It wasn't until I turned 60 and I opened my own gallery that I began to be a little bit more appreciative of my own skills. And I made up the name of a fake art critic who loved my work. It was based on the fact that in WASP culture, if you have a hyphenated name, you're taken more seriously, like John Bentley Mays. So I made up the name of a fake art critic. Are you ready? He comes from Three Rivers. His name is Don Rouge Humber. Get it? He's from Toronto. And Don would say, I take out an ad in the Globe and Mail, and Don would say, so stunning, words fail me, a legend in his own mind. And I would sit there going, oh, this is so weird. 
I find retail so boring. Is anybody going to show up? One day, a German guy came in and bought 10 paintings from me. And I said, how did you hear about me anyway? He said, well, I've known of your work for years, but I see glowing reviews in Globe and Mail from Don Rouge Hamba. At which point I thought, uh-oh, I better tell him. I don't want to be accused of fraud. And I said, well, there's something I have to tell you. I made up Don Rouge Humber. He's my alter ego. He said, well, in that case, do I make the check to you or to him? He didn't care. And I've never looked back since then. And one of the joys, I mean this quite seriously, of getting older is you begin to respect your own uh, skills and run with them and not worry about what anybody else thinks. That's the joy of um, and the wisdom of uh, coming to this time in my life. Well, it's absolutely good life advice. And on that note, Charles, as you know, Don Rouge Humber, an alter ego and a fake critic. But what was your relationship like with the Toronto media and Canadian art critics? Did you even care what the critics would say? I used to. Now I just once again get into my mischief by imitating them and saying all kinds of things. And by the way, I do have a couple of other dealers. I have a wonderful dealer in Prince Edward County, Carlin Moulton at uh, the Eno Gallery. And I have a few online dealers who I work with as well. So I've been, they've respected my skills and they're able to deal with the fact that I can still sell my own work, but they are lucky enough to have their own contacts. So I do work with them. What are you working on now at the age 80, approaching 81? I, uh, as I've told you, I have my, what I call my branded images, flags, barns, queens, moose, and streetcars. The other new category would be flowers because I spent the pandemic painting flowers. Once again, the business side of me, besides the artist, said, if Andy Warhol and Georgia O'Keeffe and Vincent Van Gogh and Helen Lucas can paint flowers, so can I. I have a marvelous garden up in Aurelia where I've painted flowers. I did a beautiful series of over 60 flower paintings, which I have now considered to be one of my... uh, my new categories. But I'm always working on new things. I've done several abstracts, which would surprise people. Once in a while, I post on Facebook and I say, name of the artist. And everybody goes, oh, that's obviously a a Bourdieu. That's obviously a Riappel. That's obviously a Jackson Pollock. They're all by me. (laughs) But I've had such fun doing them, the drip paintings. I've got several of the drip paintings. But this is the insanity of the art world. One Jackson Pollock is 80 million. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, and it's all has to do with rich people parking their money into good investments. We can't handle that in Canada. It doesn't exist. The closest we've come is paintings by Lauren Harris that were bought by Steve Martin in Hollywood, in L.A., and uh, uh, Lauren Harris now sells for $4 million. And you know what? It's worth it. He was a genius, a brilliant international artist, one of the few English-Canadian artists who's well-known internationally. The only other famous Canadian is Riappel, who made it in Paris, okay? And a Riappel, if you go onto a Heffel auction site, is like five or six million for a huge Riappel. But I've had to accept the fact that I, I, may, be, I may make it around, if I'm lucky, for another nine or ten years, and... I'll say to all my fans, I can still sell half a million dollars worth of art on my own annually, and I pay a huge tax for that amount. But I'm I'm so grateful for this particular skill and the fact that I love my collectors and I'm happy to deal with them. If people in their 40s and 50s decide to buy my art now, they're going to reap the benefits in the years to come. So I say, come on over, 
just phone. I'm on, check my website, cpactor.com, and come on over and come and help yourself. There you go. <laughs> it certainly is a different economy. And on that note, as we close up, Charles, where can we best follow you? And do you encourage visits to the Charles Pactor Museum? We're delighted to welcome visitors. If you go on my website, which is www.cpactor.com, one word, um, we're happy. Just you can call and make an appointment or let us know. We're happy to give you the tour. The place really has been a joy. Now that we have finished it, there are four terraces, catering kitchens and galleries and studios. Keith has a studio. I have a studio. Uh, the view from the roof is unlike anything in the city. It really is spectacular. So we're thrilled to have it. And it has, in its own small way, it's become something of an addition to uh, the modern contemporary architecture downtown. Fantastic. Well, you hooked me. I don't know my way around art at all, but you got me all excited. I am going to give you a call. I am going to give you a visit. I want the full tour. And I want to thank you for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and hear all your stories. And I Wish you continued success with what's next. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. And just so as you'll know, I also sell prints for $600. You don't have to pay 50000 <laughs> Something, Something for everyone's pocketbook. I love it. The like to meet you and to talk with you and uh, enjoyed very much sharing my stories. It's been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Charles Pactor, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com. Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.